Hey, what's up, everybody? My name is Dallas Post, and I am your host for the Post Money Plan podcast. As always, I believe empowerment comes through knowledge, so my purpose here is to inform, educate, and stimulate thoughts on topics within personal finance, economics, and investing. Don't forget you can find us at postmoneyplan.com or search The Post Money Plan in the iTunes podcast app or in Google Play. All right, so in today's episode, we're going to be talking about morality versus legality and kind of comparing and juxtaposing the two between the potential ambiguity in morality, but then also the ambiguity in legality. So I brought Brett Bollinger back onto the show who I had on the negotiation podcast. So welcome back to the show, Brett. Thank you. Glad to be here. So like I said, we'll, we'll just kind of bat back and forth on the topics of morality and legality. And then we can talk about some like discernment in the workplace because there's a lot of gray areas. And that's why I wanted to bring you back onto the show, Brett, because I know that you have so many interesting international experiences and anecdotes that I think tie into this topic. It really highlights how it's not straightforward applying morality and legality throughout the business world. All right, so let's start with morality. I just want to get your opinion of it, Brett. When someone says morality, what comes to mind in terms of like, what does that mean to you? And what are you thinking of in, the, in a business context? Okay, so those are two different questions slightly. Uh, there's two spins. The first is in terms of what's moral, um, I would qualify that as being something that's right with God. And then so far as moral in business, I would qualify that as something that does not conflict with existing laws and regulations and does not also conflict with your own moral guidance. The interesting bit that we'll get to, I think, eventually is how people may have different moral compasses and how those will combine together when you work with people. Yeah, I think you touch on an interesting point there. It's very difficult to segregate morality and legality because there's a lot of overlap. But the way I think of morality is the principles concerning the distinction between right and wrong or good and bad behavior. So then you can obviously see how that ties into creating laws and legality. So it's obviously very interrelated. But I would say morality is a building block for legality. Then when it comes to the purpose of morality, I believe the purpose of morals are to show us the character and will of God. So kind of what you were just touching on, I believe that the will of God includes the preservation and perpetuation of human life and animal life and nature and resources and maximizing human freedom and dignity and safety and health, happiness, knowledge, prosperity, progress, all these things that as long as they don't inhibit these other things, I think these are good things and are the building blocks of how we have morality. Even in a secular context, I think a lot of people are willing to agree on those kind of things, the value of human life and nature and dignity and, and things like that. Like I, I think regardless of people's backgrounds, there's a lot that people can agree on. Yeah, I think, you, I think we see that more in, in today's interpretations of what's legal and what's moral as well, where we see life being elevated and people's standard of living receiving increased focus. And then you see companies for the first time, I think, taking more moral positions on something for right or for wrong. And that's, that's a new trend. I don't think that it's existed historically. You do kind of want entities to do what they're meant to do. But at the same time, it's kind of robotic to say that someone's not going to have an opinion or that they are going to be completely amoral in all contexts other than the one that they are specifically assigned to do or whatever. So then the question then becomes, how do you determine what is right and wrong and what is good and bad? That's where you, you start to get further down the line and it becomes more gray because 
at first, maybe everyone will agree that like human life is valuable. But then one person will say that everyone should have equal rights. And then the next person will say, maybe not exactly. And then, and then so that's when morality starts to branch out and people have different opinions. And that's where it starts to get a little bit more complicated, I think. Yeah. And what's moral for one culture, maybe not moral for another one. I actually believe that morals are absolute in that they are anchored in God. Even if you don't agree with that, like I've been saying, I think most people will be willing to agree on some of the, those criteria that I was mentioning. If an action or behavior causes more detriment than benefit in any of these things, I think you could argue that to be immoral. You know, if something is detracting from human freedom, from dignity, safety, these kind of things, I think you can say that like that's starting to become an immoral act, potentially. So let's get more specific. Like, it's something that I can think of. Let's take theft, for example. So someone taking something that doesn't belong to them. A question I would ask is, does that align incentives of everybody with desired outcomes? I think morality kind of plays into that. If our desired outcomes are we want to preserve resources, we want to maximize safety and prosperity and progress, for example, then the benefits and risks of property ownership seem to incentivize these outcomes. So if you have theft, the contrapositive happens to be the neglecting of ownership of property is detrimental to the preservation of resources. So that's why I, I think you can even from a logical standpoint say theft is a problem, like theft is not a good thing because it's disincentivizing private property, which is encouraging the preservation of resources, prosperity and progress and those kind of things. I think one issue that comes into the moral spotlight in today's globalized society is, is bribery, because in some cultures around the world, it's not unusual to have bribes occur. And that's even with government people. So in India, for example, it used to be that if you wanted a driver's license, it was more or less expected that you had to pay the guy that would, that would give you the driver's license. And that's a state-level bribery then. And the issue with bribery is that it, it distorts what people ought to receive. So it, it kind of distorts justice in a way. So if you have a court system that's corrupt, then the person who would commit a crime may not be may escape punishment for that crime. And that wouldn't be mercy because mercy would be somebody saying, okay, I agree not to charge you with the crime. But that's more evading justice. Well, the context of bribery is, I think, a good example of a, a gray area. It's something that obviously there, there's cultural implication. Bribery is said to be not accepted everywhere, but there's degrees of acceptability in different cultures. You could definitely argue that bribes are detrimental and cause the wrong outcomes. Yeah, I, I guess one example of this is the UK started a, an act called the Foreign and Corrupt Practices Act, I think it's called. And that came out in 2008 or 2009, and that essentially said these things are now defined as illegal. And so the law began to reflect what was considered to be moral. What that meant for some of our employees is they had to have different conversations with customers then. Whereas previously in, in Africa, as an example, it was very common that whenever you gave a price to a customer for a service, that price would go to everybody else in Africa in a very short period of time. Same thing in the Middle East and probably the same thing in South America. And what that does then is it distorts the market because you no longer have a, a network of people that are buying and selling at the prevailing price. You have one person just trying to undercut the other person ever so slightly, and so it's no longer quite a fair competition. So it only becomes fair if both people know the exact same thing or if both people are treated the same way. So it begins to distort markets when you start seeing that occur or, or even bribery, but it shifts people's relationships as well. So before 2008 or 2009, you could ask someone in Africa if you were a UK national, for somebody's price. And that was legal. Was it moral? 
arguably one or yes or no. But the issue is that it was legal at the time. And then by 2010, it was now illegal to do that. So the morality arguably shifted from a legal perspective, but from an absolute moral perspective, it never had shifted in the first place. But the reason that the law changed was that there was a perceived benefit from changing that law to recognize what was moral. That's where it comes in. Basically, what I'm trying to hone in on is that there is a difference between morality and legality, potentially, that they're not always exactly the same thing. And just because something is legal doesn't mean it's necessarily moral. And just because something is, is moral doesn't necessarily mean that the law will reflect that. Yeah, I had a attorney at work, smart guy, really smart guy. And I asked him once what he thought was moral. And he said, oh, whatever is legal. And immediate response, didn't think about it. And then I asked him, we'll call him George, that's not his name. He's like, well, George, what if the law changes? And he's like, oh, then, then morality changes as well. And I was like, well, what if it flips 180 degrees? And he's like, well, then it flips 180 degrees. And that was his perspective as an attorney and from being trained in that and from his experience, that was it, period. So morality could absolutely change, but it was always just defined by what is law. So if the law changed tomorrow, the morality changed tomorrow. And that was how he lived his life and how he judged contracts and everything else for our company. Let's move into legality. What do you think of in terms of the meaning behind law and legality and things being legal? So I think people and corporations face different hurdles in this regard because corporations are constrained largely by what is just written law, whereas people are constrained by what's written law and then also by a sort of conscience. Businesses don't really have a conscience so much except for the leadership that is in place for those businesses. To me, that actually sounds like you're starting to go back into morality because the legality is either what an individual or an, a business or a, even a country is bound by, permissible by law, what is like written down as acceptable, the boundaries of what is acceptable behavior, and outside of those boundaries is not acceptable. Uh, speeding limit, for example. If there is no speeding limit, is it immoral to drive 75 on the road? Probably not. But then all of a sudden, we make a law and say, okay, the speeding limit is 65, then driving 75, now that's illegal. Well, let's make this a little bit more interesting. Continue your example, but say you're in Illinois where the speed limit tops out at 55 miles per hour or did when I kind of live there. Then you come down to Texas where the speed limit tops out at 80. If you drive 55 miles per hour in Illinois, you're doing great. You drive 80 miles per hour in Illinois, that's illegal. In Texas, you drive 80, that's legal. Where this gets more interesting is where companies are based the legality depends on where they're located. So what that would mean is if I'm an Illinois resident and I come to Texas, I cannot drive 80 miles per hour. I'm still an Illinois national company. So I would have to prescribe myself to still the 55 miles per hour limit, even if the rest of the companies in Texas are driving 80 miles per hour. So that kind of gets a little odd too. But if a Texas company were to go up to Illinois, the Texas company would have to drive 55 miles per hour because it's kind of constrained by what's legal in both areas. So like the lesser of the two. But that's, that's why companies kind of have odd times sometimes because they'll run into something that's legal where they are, but it's illegal somewhere else. Or even more interestingly, it's not legal where they are, but if they're going into a country where it is legal, then they start having a lot of questions to ask themselves. That's part of the complication. Laws will be based on geographic areas. Municipals or states or countries, laws will apply to those areas. And then you have entities, companies, that are bigger than those areas. So you have a, a company, especially international companies that are operating in multiple countries. So that means they're potentially subject to multiple sets of laws. Then it becomes a question of where they are geographically operating or doing things. 
the really big like gray area or question comes in nowadays with the connectivity of business and the internet. You can be doing things in multiple countries or even it's like on the internet. So how do you even rightly determine where things are taking place and what laws should apply to it? Yeah. So what we do in contract land is we will specify which jurisdiction applies to a contract. So if I have an entity in the UK, for example, and an entity in Argentina, for example, we can say the contract, even though we're from two different countries, will be governed by, for example, New York law in the United States. And so that is the legal jurisdiction for that contract. So something that's legal in the UK, but illegal in New York is illegal in that contract. Similarly, something that's illegal in Argentina, but legal in New York could be legal in that contract, except unless you're executing the contract in Argentina. So it's a little bit odd there, but you always have to establish what the legal jurisdiction is when you're executing a contract. So I think one differentiator between legality and morality on the legality side, just in a framework sense, law, I think of as the system of rules, which a community or society decides to abide by and then regulates and constrains its behavior by those boundaries. It gets really complicated when you're talking about international business, because one area is going to bind itself by certain laws and another area is going to bind itself by other laws. And when a business is operating internationally, it almost has like the optionality or flexibility to relocate its operations or business dealings based on where laws are taking place. That really starts to come into context when you're talking about taxes, because a business can shift its operations based on what taxes are being levied on the business. I think that's very much a legal debate of like where taxes are levied because businesses could be operating in multiple countries and they can do all kinds of stuff. And that's what we've seen. There's been a lot of debate over that of American tech companies operating in Ireland because they've had a lot of tax incentives that is basically able to legally avoid a bunch of taxes. Obviously, there's governments that aren't happy about that because they want their share of taxes. A big differentiator between morality and law is that law is usually created and enforced by government. Whereas morality is almost like a zeitgeist kind of thing (laughs) of just whatever the mob is drawn to at a given point in time. But even across time, like people's values change somewhat and and what they deem is immoral or immoral can shift and is not going to be necessarily dictated by the government, for example. Then in terms of the purpose of law and, and what, what it's serving versus uh, morals, do you think law is upholding our morals? No, I think the law depends on our morals. I think legally, each law that's created is based on society's perception of what is moral at that time. And that's why you see them change over time. I don't think law is leading us into morality. I think legality stems from morality. It's funny, though, when culture is different in different countries, People will say, oh, they're doing it weird over there or it's backwards over there. What you're ignoring is that there's a different set of culture in one area versus another. Yeah. And and this is kind of funny, too, because usually people will say, oh, well, it's wrong if they do that. And then you can ask them the next good follow up question is, well, do you think one culture is superior to another? And they'll always say no. And so like, why is it wrong for them to do that then? And it, it usually causes some some thinking at that point. All right. So then let me take my example from the morality side. When I was talking about theft, you could say that theft is immoral because it detracts from people's safety and incentive to own property and preserve resources and that kind of thing. So then you can then transfer that to the legal side and say, 
basically the same things apply. If we want to align incentives with desired outcomes and our desired outcomes are the preservation of resources and safety and prosperity and progress, then we want to put in place laws that are going to protect those things. And so by making it illegal to steal and making theft illegal, then we're safeguarding, we're encouraging private property, for example, which we are then saying is maximizing prosperity and, and safety and progress and these kind of things. So I think this is where you see the evolution of law from morality. Okay, so this is where I was really interested to get your insight. When it comes to discerning right and wrong in the workplace, for example, could you give us an example of something that you had to deal with and had to think about it? Yeah, so there have been a few times at work where I've just refused to do something. That has worked out okay for me, I think, because every person has a limit, and I think most people realize that. But the trick at work in order to survive with your morality is to be more valuable alive than dead. Um. <laughs> Who do you work for? They <laughs> make me an offer I can't refuse. Uh no, but the reality is like you will be you will absolutely be asked to do something at some point that you may not want to do. And one of the sayings I've heard that I like a lot is that if you don't stand for something, you're, you'll fall for anything. And I've seen that happen before at work. Uh, we had a deal we were doing in Africa and one of our sales managers had I, I forget exactly how this happened. But the, the idea was that somehow they got some information on a competitor they weren't supposed to have. And so my company just axed everybody. So everybody from that sales manager all the way up to the head of the, the region were just all fired. It, it took them a little while to catch everybody, but that whole leg just got chopped off. Brutal. All the way up the top, yeah. And that's, that's really the issue, though, is because if you don't know exactly where your allegiances lie, they will absolutely just start to slip little by little. And then all of a sudden you're in a situation that you didn't really mean to be in. And the easiest way to just not have that situation happen is you just raise the flag and walk out and have your triggers predefined and say, okay, if this starts to happen, I'm gone and, and just stick to them. Sometimes you'll get caught up in stuff that is not your fault. <laughs> we had one guy raise an issue of corruption. He hadn't done it himself, but he knew it was happening. And so he, he flagged it and then, and then they put him on leave because <laughs> they, they thought he was associated with it. So there's, there's the potential for like collateral damage as well. But I think the issue is just you have to realize that you personally have to make a choice in what you're willing to do. And when it comes time to it, you need to be able to say, okay, that's it, I'm done. And then at that point, you walk away. And you can't have this little death by a thousand paper cuts thing where you just, oh, it's just one paper cut. And, and okay, one more paper cut. And a thousand paper cuts later, there you are. Well, I think a point worth noting, especially when you talk about like a young professional, is that I feel like so many things in school are painted black and white. And then when you get into the working world, you see that there's a lot more gray area. Things aren't as clean as clean cut as they are put in textbooks, for example. Yeah, and that's that's partially, I think, due to the, the resource constraints we have in teaching kids. But the reality is, like, you have to make a lot of decisions on your own once you're out of school. And a lot of people are really good at influencing other people around them. So if you are like me coming out of school, you're paying off a huge amount of student loans you really are financially dependent on your employer. And so that creates kind of a conflict of interest off the bat because what your employer may want you to do is not something that you want to do, but at the same time, you like eating food. And so that <laughs> <clears throat> it's kind of a conflict of interest there. But part of like deciding if you're, if you're going to have something that's moral or, or legal and you're going to go play in that realm for your job, 
And some jobs require that more than others. So I used to work in restaurants. I would not consider that to be something that was like I was on the line all the time for moral and ethic questions. But if you work in contracts or you work in sales, especially, that's where you start to go down the the interesting path that is morality. But I think although if you were spitting in the customer's food in the back, that's probably I'm not aware if there's any laws against that, but uh, it's certainly probably not moral. <laughs> I do know that that happens sometimes when I worked in restaurants, oh, man. but um, not very often at all. But anyway, so the, to I think to preserve your morality at some degree, it's you, you have to decide what your limits are, and then you also have to have an exit strategy. And for a lot of people, myself included, that means just having enough funds that you can go survive on your own for six months, a year, whatever it is. And you have to be yeah, willing to push that button. Definitely. I mean, I think the point there is that you are going to be put in questionable situations because the big thing is conflicts of interest. You know, there's so many times where something that's going to be in your personal best interest is going to conflict with your employer or some organization or something where you're asked to do something or potentially have the opportunity to do something that is not in the best interest of the whole or someone else or those kind of things. And that's where the question of morality comes up and whether it's legal or not, and where you have to have discernment and have a compass that's pointing you in a a solid direction, independent of that individual situation. Yeah. And that'll be a stressful thing sometimes. Um, Winston Churchill had a great quote. He said, you have enemies, good. That means you sit up for something sometime in your life. (laughs) (laughs) That's a real thing that people face. And that's something you have to walk into the situation knowing that you're going to face it. Well, speaking of Churchill, actually, I think an example that people can really identify with from World War II in talking about Nazi Germany, a bunch of the Nazi soldiers, when they had them on trial, they were trying to claim that, oh, well, everything we were doing was legal because it was legal in Germany. Well, okay, yeah, no, that doesn't qualify. Like, that's not good enough. Just because it was legal doesn't mean it was okay to do what you were doing. Yeah, and it's funny to kind of look at that through a different lens because laws, as we said before, is, are written by the people of the culture of the time. So what the Germans were kind of saying, kind of, is our people thought this was okay, so we did it. And then the Americans come in, they're thinking, okay, well, under our laws, that's not okay. So the American people say, uh, under our culture, not okay. That's where you start to see, you start to see like world accords where you start saying, okay, this is defined now as a war crime. So everybody has the same moral compass on this specific issue. I think as we see globalization occur, we'll start to see kind of a global discernment on what is acceptable globally and what is not. But we're not quite there to that point yet. One that's more controversial still, but abortion is legal in the U.S., but to me is just morally reprehensible. I think that's a good example of where something is legal, but not moral. Yeah, and I think Iceland was in the news for trying to eliminate Down syndrome by abortion. Some situations that I dealt with in my work experience When I worked for Aramco in contracting, there was a story that would go around. When they were building up the compound in Saudi Arabia for expat workers, there was a big boom in oil, and they were hiring a bunch of engineers and moving a ton of expats into the community there. Well, they had to build a bunch of condo-type houses to house everyone in, in the compound. So the Aramco VP who was responsible for construction of like 10,000 homes for this project to locate all these expat workers in there, he actually awarded the construction contract to his own side business that, <laughs> that did construction of homes. And obviously that wasn't going to be the best price for the company. So there you see where there wasn't necessarily anything illegal about what happened or what he did, if awarding it sitting with his Aramco hat on 
awarding it to his company of his other construction company hat. And, you know, you could see that was in his interest, but that's not necessarily in the best interest of, of Aramco because it, maybe it's more expensive and maybe less quality or something. And that's where basically the topic of conflicts of interest comes up. And, and for example, like insider trading is a big thing in the U.S. with SEC regulations on, on the stock market because I, working at a company, may have information about something that's going to happen that could be market moving or, or moving the stock of the company that I work for, and other people aren't going to have access to that information. So that's unfair for everyone else, and that's why we have our insider trading laws in the U.S. Another one that I heard is that Brett, uh, you and I have worked kind of on the opposite sides of the table in the contracting business. One that I heard for someone on my side of the table who was responsible for analyzing bids of a, a big construction contract was that the guy who was responsible for awarding the contract was sent an envelope in the mail. And it was just like a, <laughs> I know where this is going already. <laughs> what was in the envelope? <laughs> a big fat wad of cash. <laughs> and, you know, obviously, if there's just cash sitting in front of you, then it's in their interest to just say, okay, I'll take the cash and I'll award the contract to the person who sent it to me. The conflict of interest being that that's not the best interest of the company and shouldn't rightfully be awarded to that company. So in that particular case, that guy actually went and reported it and turned the money in. So good on him. But I know there's lots of situations that occur that are going to be very tempting or maybe more gray or harder to deal with. Or maybe let's say that guy was under pressure in his finances and was trying to pay off a mortgage or something. Then there would be like all this pressure for him to say like, okay, maybe this isn't a good thing, but I'm doing, I need to take this money for a good cause or something. Yeah. And in South America, it's not even the people that give and receive bribes. It's like the level of taint is severe for the amount that they get paid usually. One story, and we won't name names, but you can Google it very easily. There was a guy in Pakistan who was known as Mr. 10%. And if he wanted to sell anything in Pakistan to, to the government, he had to take 10% of it. And that was it. Like, that was the end of the story. <laughs> and that lasted for a long time. That, that's the type of corruption that, and this, this is kind of a statement on efficient markets too, but whenever you have people scooping cream off the top for themselves, everybody starts to know that in the business world. And so prices keep going up because they know that they're going to get screwed on something. Like they're going to have to grease somebody or they're going to have to pay extra in fines. Or Brazil, for example, is notorious for just fining people all the time. So when we used to do contracts in Brazil, the negotiating teams that we went up against would always ask for things. And it was just the silliest things. They'd ask for, if we ask you to file this report, you must file it within five days or pay $5,000. And we're like, okay, well, I, I guess we'll, we'll do that. And then they would they would ask you on like a Friday or something like that. And then they'd be like, oh, pay us five thousand dollars. And we're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so, we, but it was, and honestly, like we had a contract that had about thirty of those rules in there. And if you're one project manager, that's a lot to keep track of because you've got to like actually do the work. And then you've got all these little rules. And so we just learned we would put a cap on the fines. And then we would just assume that we're going to end up paying the max fines because it's at some point at some point they'll ask you for all 30 things at once and it's not possible to do it or whatever else it is. And you just end up paying fines. But it was kind of funny because it ended up having the opposite effect because customers would put that in there because they're like, oh, we'll cost some money back from them. And then 
the person who's bidding it is like, well, these guys are going to screw me on this. So I might as well increase the price by 15% if I'm going to end up paying 10%. But that's the kind of thinking that happens. So there, there's some, it starts making things a lot less efficient when, when somebody starts trying to push their advantage or, or influence the results of something. Nothing in life is like a one-off. And I think people don't realize that all the time. Everything. Oh man, that, that kills me. Like that bothers me to no end. The, every, <laughs> like everything is so short-term thinking and never thinking about, it's almost like game theory. It's always thinking like it's a single game move instead of thinking people are going to respond after this and people are going to do different things based on what I do today. And it's completely not taking into account the long term. Yeah. And what's funny too is <laughs> people complain about I've heard complaints before about America's business is crooked or whatever, these evil corporations. America is the cheapest place to do business in the world, except perhaps for taxes. Like when, for power generation, for example, and this is a niche thing, but some of you can look it up if you're interested. But the cost of building a power plant in the United States is published by the EIA every year. And you can see, like on a global scale, the United States is the cheapest place to construct a power plant. And that means that it's the cheapest place for someone to buy a power plant. And it's also the cheapest place to get fuel and it's the cheapest place to go sell power. So the next time you're charging your iPhone, whatever, it literally would cost you about three times more to charge that in the UK than it would cost you to charge in the US, just as an example in comparison. So what we would pay is maybe like, and this varies in the US, but on the low side, probably eight cents per kilowatt hour of electricity and probably up maybe like 15 to 20 cents if you're somewhere like California or maybe Hawaii is a little bit further north than that. But somewhere around there, in the UK, you're not getting electricity for less than like probably 25 to 30 cents per kilowatt hour, period. So regulations stifle that stuff. Taxation stifles it. Corruption stifles it. So in South America, they will pay a whole lot more for power than they will in the United States, probably because they have all these regulations in place. And then they've also got, which is legalism again. And then South America has historically had more problems with corruption. And that's not just my opinion. You can go look on like the CIA World Factbook and they rank everybody <laughs> in corruption and South America is holding it down over there. <laughs> and they've gotten a lot better, but it's, it's still just one of those things where there are actual tangible effects in the world and everything from the cost to charge your phone to how easily you can get a job. That actually reminds me of what was going on with housing back in the mid 2000s before the crisis in 2008 is that all these banks were going out and making loans to customers that they had no confidence that they could repay the loans. They, they weren't really concerned about it because they could just sell the loans to Fannie Mae. Basically, they were ignoring the moral implication of loaning to people who weren't going to be able to make the loan payments back. That's where there was no legal obligation for them to make sure of that. But from a moral side, the banks were making loans out that they knew people weren't going to pay back and going to put people into really difficult situations, if not run them into poverty. Yeah, so when it comes to discernment of morality and right and wrong in the workplace, a big thing for me was at my last job at Raymond James in investment banking, the reason I quit that job as a stock market analyst was that uh, I would research stocks and make investment recommendations to the bank's retail investor clients. There was a huge conflict of interest in the way the industry is structured currently because the bank stands to make the most amount of money from companies where they're doing investment banking deals with them as opposed to the bank's retail investment clients. The bank doesn't want to make the companies mad that it could potentially be doing M&A deals with. The investment bank could be talking to oil companies, for example, and say, hey, would you like to acquire a competitor? We'll help you with the M&A research and the, and the transaction. Or would you like to raise some financing and issue some debt? We'll help you with that. 
or would you like to issue equity or do an IPO if they're not public yet? All those kind of things. They're talking to these companies and saying, we'll do this business for you. But the thing is, if I, as a stock market analyst, write a report on that stock, that company and that stock saying, oh, I think it's, it's a bad investment right now. They're not doing well or they're doing bad things or for whatever reason, I say like, okay, don't buy the stock. Then the company gets mad and says, oh, we're going to do business with the other stock market analyst or the company that has the other analyst who's saying good things about us. So then there's kind of this conflict of interest that's integral to the structure of investment banking and equity research and how that's all structured. Basically, the entire purpose of my job to research stocks and make investment recommendations is all kind of like a farce and just a show because it's really just like marketing. What we're saying as stock market analysts isn't necessarily valid because they're always going to be saying good things about the stocks to make the companies happy so that they'll keep doing business with the banks. I found that to be immoral and I didn't want to participate in that. And that's why I left the position there. I think another good example of where you're talking about the difference between morality and legality, the Panama Papers, when they came out back in 2015, there was a big like uproar around that. was that. ridiculous. Because so, <laughs> so many people are upset. Like, hey, all these like wealthy people are storing their taxes in offshore. Well, the funniest part was <laughs> in the UK at the time, they were trying to justify like changes in the tax code that would make other people pay more taxes. And meanwhile, at the, <laughs> at the same time, the Panama Papers come out and it shows all these British people that are in Parliament <laughs> like hiding their money offshore. It's just like the biggest egg in the face ever. And it's crazy, but that, that stuff happens all the time. The big thing there was that what they were doing was legal. They were finding legal ways to get around having to pay as much taxes. The uproar is from the moral side. It's like, hey, obviously we, we're saying something is wrong here, but the law isn't quite catching that. Basically, the whole point of this that I want to really emphasize is to be trying to consider these situations in advance and having discernment in the workplace and in what you're doing and sticking true to your guns in terms of your morals and what you value in your character and everything like that and not compromising it in difficult situations because those definitely will come up and there's a lot of potential for compromise. I just want to encourage people to step outside the situation and hold true to themselves. All right. Thanks for coming back onto the show. See you next time. All right. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Post Money Plan podcast. Don't forget to check us out on the iTunes podcast app or in Google Play.